Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast, you'll hear Stephen Howes, Jesse Doyle, Matthew Dornan and Richard Curtin discussing the results of their new joint ANU World Bank report, Pacific Possible Labour Mobility. The report sets out pathways to expand labour mobility in the Pacific and quantifies the gains that policy reform in these areas could bring. We hope you enjoy the podcast. We might make a start, so welcome to the Crawford School. Uh, my name is Matthew Dornan, I'm Deputy Director of the Development Policy Centre. Uh, I'm also uh, one of the authors um, of the report that we're launching today, uh, and I'll be chairing proceedings. <coughs> um, before we begin, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, and to pay respects to their elders past and present. The report we're launching, uh, Labour Mobility, the $10 billion prize, uh, has been produced by a team uh, of authors, uh, three of whom are here, and hopefully by one o'clock, four of whom will be here. Um, So they include, aside from myself, uh, Stephen Howes, the director of the Development Policy Centre, Richard Curtin, who unfortunately has had uh, plane troubles and uh, may be a little late. Um, He's a visiting fellow with Dove Policy um, and a a well-known authority uh, on migration. Uh, And then uh, last but not least is uh, Jesse Doyle, um, standing over here, and he'll say uh, some words in a moment. Uh, For us, he's an alumni of the Crawford School, um, but uh, he's now a social protection economist at the World Bank. Um, So in the interest of time, uh, Stephen will be the one to present the report, um, but the other authors will be on hand to answer questions uh, at the end. Um, Apologies in advance for the all-male panel. Um, These were the authors of the report. Um, I should mention, though, that the report was informed um, by a series of background papers um, that uh, were specifically commissioned as part of this study. Uh, Some of those were presented at a workshop at the beginning of June that was organised here, I think in this very room. Um, and they included studies by Charlotte and Richard Bedford from Waikato, uh, Carmen Vogtgraf um, from Death Policy, and she has a joint appointment with NRI, Sophia Kagan from the ILO, uh, Anne Wigglesworth from Victoria University, uh, Stephen Close from the World Bank, um, and Richard Curtin also uh, produced a number of those studies. I should also mention this report was prepared as part of a broader research project um, initiated by the World Bank, which is called Pacific Possible. Um, I won't say much about that because Jesse uh, will talk about it, uh, but I will just mention that it follows on from um, earlier work the bank did um, that looked at some of the constraints to growth that the Pacific faces. Um, Those were summarised in a World Bank uh, discussion paper called Pacific Futures, uh, which was launched um, here again uh, in 2012. So it's great that they're following up that work with this new research. So that's enough from me. Um, Stephen will present, we'll have questions afterwards, but for for now, I'd like to um, welcome Jesse. Excellent, thanks, Matt. Um, So my name is Jesse Doyle. I'm a social protection economist with the World Bank. um, And I'd like to thank Stephen, Matt, and Richard uh, for partnering with us on this research. I'm going to talk a little bit about Pacific Possible, um, the research series, just to give you a bit of background on where this research has come from and what it's all about. Um, It is the third in a series of three uh, analytical reports that the bank has produced on the uh, Asia-Pacific region over the past few years, starting with China 2030, uh, then there was Vietnam 2035, and this is essentially Pacific 2040, albeit with a slightly different title. 
The idea is that it will build on and not replicate um, the previous analytical work that has preceded it, uh, which includes Pacific 2020, uh, which Stephen worked on, and also the Pacific Futures work, um, which the bank was involved with. Um, so the sort of the question is why Pacific possible? Um, and I think this graph kind of sums it up pretty nicely. Growth rates in the Pacific have been uh, persistently lower than in East Asia Pacific as a whole and um, compared against small states across the globe. Um, and if you look sort of within the Pacific, uh, there's variation in the growth rate. So Timor and PNG, for example, have had fairly high growth on the back of commodity exports. Um, but if you look at uh, the Polynesian countries and the Micronesian countries, growth has really lagged behind. Um, so it would be fair to say that growth has been an issue for the Pacific. Um, and in per capita terms, it's been even more of an issue. Um, so if you look at uh, Kiribati there, you can see that growth's been about 1.8% um, over the past 10 years. Um, but when you factor in population growth, it's effectively been stagnant. So living standards aren't um, really improving in, in real terms. So that's looking back uh, 10 years. If we sort of project through to 2040 and ask the question of what happens in the absence of um, any other policy reforms, we can see that real GDP per capita is fairly stagnant for most of the Pacific, with the exception of uh, Fiji and Palau. And if we look at certain countries like um, FSM, you can see there, um, living standards actually declined between uh, 2015 or 2013 and 2040. Um, so the question is, um, what can be done to uh, alter that growth trajectory for the Pacific? And this is really the premise of uh, Pacific Possible. So it's starting from that, from that question. Rather than looking at every sector across the economy, what we've decided to do is narrow down on a certain set of sectors which we feel have uh, potential for high growth. Um, there's obviously structural constraints to growth in the Pacific. Um, and what the Pacific Futures work that the, that the bank did highlighted is that the, the region faces this triple burden of uh, economic geography. Um, so they're the smallest economies in the world. Um, they're amongst the most remote and they're also uh, extremely dispersed. Um, so a country like Kiribati is, is set out over uh, an area of ocean the size of India, um, but it has uh, a population that's about 1% the size of Mumbai's. And I guess what you can take away from that is that these countries are never going to become manufacturing hubs and, um, and nor should we expect them to do so. What instead uh, we do is focus on the sectors with uh, potential for growth and I'll go through this uh, shortly. Um, but that's basically what this report is about is, is quantifying the gains from those sectors, um, looking forward 25 years, so it's over a 25 year time horizon. Um, and also looking at what policy reforms are required on the part of other larger metropolitan countries, so for Australia and New Zealand, um, and not just the Pacific Island uh, countries. How are we doing it? We've started this about two years ago, and we've done a number of consultations right across the region, um, and also in some of the larger countries like Australia, New Zealand, China. Um, we've met up with regional organisations like PIFs, um, academic institutions like USP and ANU um, and others. And we are producing uh, basically nine background papers um, across these six themes. And the idea is that we'll uh, quantify the gains in each of these sectors and then stack them up at the end in the final Pacific Possible Report. So labour mobility is just one of the sectors we're looking at and that will form 
basically a, a ninth of the, 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 the final report. The other sectors we're looking at um, uh, are varied. Um, the first theme is around harnessing the riches of the uh, Pacific Ocean, which looks at the potential for growth in the uh, tuna fishery sector and whether there's potential for uh, seabed mining in the Pacific. Uh, labor mobility we're obviously presenting on today and Stephen will run through the findings from that paper. Uh, Host to the world is looking at the tourism sector and looking at the potential for growth beyond um, Fiji and Vanuatu and some of the larger players there. Islands in a Sea of Knowledge is looking at investments in ICT and whether that can spur growth in the region. Um, working together is looking at regional approaches to procurement and whether there can be cost savings there. And then the final theme is managing increasing stress on uh, Pacific livelihoods. And that's looking at whether there can be cost savings from um, controlling some of the risks around non-communicable diseases and climate change. So I'll just briefly touch on, uh, on some of the findings from a couple of the, the background papers, um, but I won't go into much detail. Um, but at least this will give you an idea of kind of how the gains from other sectors stack up against um, some of those that Stephen will present on um, for labour mobility. So for tuna fisheries, uh, the team came up with a series of five recommendations. Again, I won't go into all of these, but a, a couple of the core ones were around um, building on the success of the, the parties to the Nauru Agreement um, through greater regional cooperation um, and also imposing uh, further catch limits in order to uh, constrain the supply of tuna and push up prices and uh, basically get higher rents from that, from that sector. And uh, projecting the gains, they found that there was the potential for an additional three, uh, $344 million in uh, public revenue. And about 88 million of this would be from uh, local processing. So moving the processing of tuna from um, places like Thailand um, into the region. In terms of employment growth, um, their projections suggested there could be an extra 15,000 jobs uh, for Pacific Islanders from tuna fisheries. Um, so huge potential in terms of um, additional public revenue, but fairly limited on um, the jobs growth side. Looking at the tourism sector, um, the team here basically focused on uh, four core areas uh, for growth. Uh, one was on an increase in Chinese tourists from the mainland. The other was on the, the luxury tourist market. And uh, the third was on retirees. And the fourth, looking at whether cruise ships could be based out of the region. So a lot of the cruise ships are currently coming from places like Sydney and Auckland. And what they found is that um, if all of these uh, sort of areas or markets were tapped, um, there could be an extra 1 million uh, tourists heading to the Pacific in any given year. And this is sort of moving out to 2040. And then spend about $2,000 per head, generating about $1.8 billion in spending and an extra 133,000 jobs. So much more potential from tourism in terms of employment growth um, than, than tuna fisheries. So I might leave it there. I'm not going to go through all of the background papers, but that sort of gives you an, a bit of an idea about uh, what the report's about and sort of how some of the, the gains from different sectors stack up. Um, if you would like to join the conversation, we do have a Pacific Possible website and uh, the, the address is there. There's also an email address which you can send feedback to um, if you want to comment on any of the background papers. And we've got a Pacific Possible hashtag if you want to jump on Instagram and post a selfie. Um, I'm going to leave it there and I'll hand it over to Stephen to talk through the, uh, the findings from the labour mobility background paper.
Thanks. Okay, well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming. It's great to see such a good, <coughs> a good turnout. Uh, I'm going to jump straight into it. I've got a lot to get through. So I think, uh, as you already heard, this report examines what's possible through overseas employment for Pacific Islanders. It's been done jointly by several of us at the Development Policy Centre and the and the World Bank as part of this larger. World Bank project. Uh, it is a big, uh, it's a big report, the copies are outside. Uh, it did take me back to my days in the World Bank where we used to produce these really big reports. There's a lot in it uh, because it goes right from uh, looking at the current situation and trends through to coming up with all these reform proposals and substantiating them uh, and then quantifying the benefits through this scenario analysis. So there's a lot in there, it's not an easy report to summarize and um, present, but fortunately this is my second go because we launched it in Fiji in the Pacific Update a couple of weeks ago. And so this is uh, uh, the Canberra launch. It's our second launch. Yeah, despite it being very glossy, it's actually a draft. So wait till you see the final one. <laughs> and it's a, it is a draft and you're welcome to comment. We'd love to get your feedback um, for the final version. All right, so why, uh, why labor mobility? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, there is this growing consensus that labor mobility needs to be part of the policy mix for the, uh, for the Pacific. I think what was contentious maybe 10 years ago is no longer contentious. And there have been a series of labor uh, mobility initiatives, uh, the biggest being the seasonal worker program in both Australia and the equivalent in New Zealand. It's also the uh, APTC uh, initiative. Uh, there's the new microstates visa, there's the Christchurch earthquake reconstruction um, uh, earthquake uh, initiative from New Zealand. Uh, there's a Korean scheme that we go into involving uh, Timor-Leste. So I think, uh, in fact, this is the easiest part of the report uh, to make. Um, but uh, nevertheless, it's an important part and it's how we, we start the report with the, uh, with the rationale. Uh, so you probably won't, uh, this, you know, if you're familiar with this debate, you, you won't probably find a, a lot that's new here, um, but we do set out the benefits for in terms of this triple win, uh, both for um, the migrants, the sending countries and receiving countries. Yeah, I'm just going to point out, you know, this um, this is the labor mobility. This is from Pacific Possible. You know, this poor patient looks really unhappy, right? And these nurses uh, look like they're about to get the patient, but this patient is a dummy, so. <laughs> I feel I have to say that to protect the reputation of e Kiribati nurses. Uh, so, labor mobility is a triple win. First of all, for the migrants. I think that's the clearest case. You know, labor mobility is fantastic for those who are able to move. It's the quickest way to get someone out of poverty or sort of low income status into high income status. Uh, Richard Curtin's just walked in. He's our fourth author. Thanks, Richard, for coming. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's the clearest that uh, the clearest gain is obviously for the, the migrant whose income, you know, expected income goes up by an order of magnitude. Um, but I guess for Pacific migrants, you know, it's particularly beneficial because there's a very high level of unemployment or underemployment. It's very hard to get a formal sector job. Uh, so the benefits of overseas employment are particularly good, uh, particularly high for the Pacific. 
Uh, for the sending country, you know, I think we want to say at the outset, you know, labor mobility is not going to make you prosperous as a country. I don't think there's any country that's sort of gone to high income status through labor mobility strategy. So we don't want to oversell it uh, in terms of the sending country. Nevertheless, uh, we do think it is critical uh, for the Pacific. It has a number of benefits, reduces poverty, supports human capital development, helps finance trade deficits. And, you know, we think it's important for all the Pacific countries. Obviously, it's important for somewhere like Kiribati, right, where those problems that uh, Jesse mentioned of isolation and remote is particularly acute. But even if you think of Fiji, which is the most sophisticated Pacific economy, uh, remittances are now the second largest export earner after tourism. So labor mobility is potentially important for the whole, the, the great range of uh, Pacific countries we have. Uh, of course, people are always worried about brain drain. Um, and, you know, that is a legitimate risk. Uh, but we argue, uh, uh, and we come to back to this later, that we must and can have labor mobility without brain drain. We th shouldn't think of brain drain as an inevitability, but something that we can we can manage, and in fact we can work towards brain brain gain. Uh, finally, what's in it for the receiving countries? You know, this is what's unusual about this report. Coming from the World Bank, it's making recommendations not only for the developing countries, but for countries like Australia and New Zealand. Well, we think. Uh, Labor mobility has a number of benefits for the receiving countries, and we think Pacific's fortunate it's surrounded by countries that are countries of, of migration. Um, so in a sense, we don't really have to press this case. Uh, but why would uh, countries like Australia and New Zealand focus on the Pacific? Well, we think they, they have a specific strategic interest in the Pacific region. Uh, it's mainly pursued by foreign aid, but foreign aid, you know, it's an important but limited tool, and labor mobility can do a lot of things that... Um, foreign aid can't do, in particular in terms of getting benefits down to the household level, uh, but also in terms of skills transfer. Uh, you know, we're preferential treatment in a migration program sort of rings alarm bells, but, you know, we should recognise that no country has a non-discriminatory migration program, uh, including Australia, where special countries are singled out for special treatment. Just think of the arrangement with New Zealand. And we think preferential treatment for the Pacific is justified on strategic grounds, uh, and manageable because of the small numbers. I mean, that's the sort of saving grace uh, of this. And then finally, in case of Australia, you know, you would have seen some of the TV reports, most recently on SBS, you know, about the exploitation involved. And you know, Australia does bring in a lot of migrants to fill low school jobs, and there does seem to be a problem uh, with exploitation and regulation. And, and that's probably because we haven't really thought through how we're actually going to meet our unskilled labour needs in the official sort of paradigm uh, migration is for skilled needs. Uh, so having a Pacific labor mobility strategy more focused on the unskilled and semi-skilled end, we think would help, it's not the complete answer, but it help Australia work through some of these problems uh, at the moment that, that are emerging. Uh, all right, so labor mobility is a good thing. Um, you know, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the opportunities for mo labor mobility are unevenly divided across the Pacific. And it's important to take a differentiated approach. Uh, we have, we divide the countries up. We only, to be in this report, you have to belong to the World Bank. So um, not every country gets into the report, but the others that are, you can imagine where they fit into these four groups. We have the open access groups. These are the countries, and you could put Cook Islands there as well, that have a formal, uh, a legal um, a right to move overseas, whether it's to, the New, to New Zealand or the United States. So not surprisingly, they have pretty high out-migration rates. Then we have these uh, three countries that don't have any legal 
uh, at least don't have unrestricted legal rights, but through a variety of historical factors and limited agreements, uh, have managed to become high mobility countries, and so by definition have very high outward uh, migration rates. Then we have these three countries at the opposite end of the spectrum, PNG, Solomons, and Vanuatu, which are some of the most isolated countries in the world right, in terms of uh, number of the percentage of their population living overseas. You can hardly see it. And then finally, we single out Kiribati and Tuvalu. Uh, they have low to moderate uh, outward migration rates, but they're highly vulnerable to the effects of climate change as atoll countries. Uh, and unlike, say, Marshalls, they don't have the um, unrestricted uh, access overseas, so they're particularly vulnerable. Uh, so, you know, the aim shouldn't be, I think, to just increase uh, labor mobility overall, but we're particularly focused on these five countries, on these two groups uh, at the end. Uh, and then finally, we, we try in the report to look at it from both sides, both points of view. And so this is now from the receiving country point of view. Um, yeah, the, the, as I said, there's small numbers. So for Australia and New Zealand, they hardly register. It's below uh, half a percent. For New Zealand, it's more significant, but it's still only 3% of the population are uh, Pacific migrants. All right, so we want to boost, we want to identify labor mobility opportunities, uh, particularly for the isolated and vulnerable countries. And then we're going to quantify the impact. How do we go about identifying the reforms? Uh, well, uh, we focused on both sending and receiving countries. In terms of receiving countries, we looked at Australia and New Zealand as the two countries most concerned with the Pacific, but also South Korea because of this one scheme that they've started. Uh, and then in terms of sending countries, as I said, we focused on those five. We took a sort of menu of options approach. Uh, where we try to put a lot of ideas on the table. Not every idea, I'm sure you can come up with others, but a wide range uh, with the idea of provoking debate and discussion. So, you know, the idea is not that we'll convince you on everything, but I hope at least on some of the ideas uh, you'll think they're worthy of further analysis. Uh, we look at both seasonal, less than 12 months, temporary, one to five years, and uh, long-term uh, migration options. Um, in because, again, we want to put a menu of options on the table. We can debate which is the, the more important. And then we focus on low, medium school. I mean, if you're a doctor, you can already migrate. Right? You don't need a labor mobility pathway. So the, uh, the focus is on low and medium school. And then, as uh, Matt mentioned, you know, we didn't just... Uh, I mean, it was a fun exercise, right? If you believe in labor mobility, it's like being a kid in the candy store. Um, but we were, you know... We didn't just come up with ideas, we tried to do, well, we did do research and we've got a number of background papers and we debated these issues, we looked at different models and other countries and you can judge for yourselves. All right, so it is quite a lot because there are about 10 of these options and I've got to go through all those and only then can I get to the uh, scenario analysis. So I'm going to go fairly quickly through both the reforms and then just summarise the scenario analysis. All right, we start off with seasonal work then I'll do temporary and then the long-term and permanent. I mean, seasonal work, we're basically concerned with these two seasonal worker programs in Australia and New Zealand. And despite being pretty similar schemes, uh, they have very different uh, reform options. Um, and that stems, you could get that from this graph. Uh, the New Zealand scheme is much bigger than the Australian scheme. Uh, and the Australian scheme is, is lower, but it is still growing. I think now we're up to about 4,000. Uh, so the New Zealand scheme is bigger, but the New Zealand scheme is capped. Uh, and the New Zealand scheme is basically at the cap. There are a few non-Pacific workers who are also coming under the cap. Uh, but the main constraint 
for the New Zealand scheme is just the cap, you know, which is set by government and which is now at about 9,000 or 9,500. Uh, so it's been, it, it's been increasing over time. Uh, so for New Zealand, it's pretty simple. If you want to increase the uh, RSE, you increase the cap. And we think there are good arguments to do that. Uh, New Zealand wants to um, uh, increase its uh, horticultural uh, sector. Uh, it, I think it was doubling from 2010 to 2020. Uh, while they have a New Zealand first policy, it's very difficult to get New Zealanders to work, so they're going to need a bigger... <laughs> okay, to work on this sector. <laughs> uh, so they need to increase the cap. The Australian scheme, I mean, the it's small, but the advantage is not, it's not capped. Uh, the cap was removed uh, last year. And, you know, while that's a very good thing, because it does mean it, it has potential to grow over time, it's, it's hard to know how much it will keep growing, but it's, uh, it does, you don't need to increase the cap. Um, what could you do to get it to grow faster, right? There are clear demand side issues that you could address in Australia, none of which are really relevant in New Zealand, but which would definitely help in Australia. And uh, these are the three that we've mentioned based on our earlier research. You know, the main competition the uh, seasonal, worker, seasonal workers face is not from Australians, but from backpackers. You know, we funnel backpackers into horticulture because we say if you work on a farm, we'll give you a visa for a second year. If you work on a farm for three months. And that was introduced at a time when the government was facing these demands from employers to address labour shortages. They weren't willing to introduce the seasonal worker scheme, so they introduced this instead. It's now in direct competition, and you know the backpackers are uh, working on a farm uh, sort of up at 40,000, right? So they're completely off the chart. Right? They are winning this competition. So the best thing the government could do would be take off the second-year visa. You could just say any three months of work, right? You can get a second-year visa or just give out two-year visas, but don't funnel these backpackers into horticulture. It doesn't seem... Uh, it doesn't seem right. It's, it's a good example of a discriminatory scheme. Nearly all these backpackers are from OECD countries. And that's because all of the big agreements are with, 95% are with um, OECD countries. So, you know, we're the only country that wants to have uh, OECD, uh, not OECD, developed countries, wants to have, um, you know, kids from developed countries pick our fruit. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, second scheme could still be much more promoted. Uh, there's still limited awareness. And third, you know, the other competition is from illegal workers that overlaps with backpackers. And I think it's become clear from the various TV shows and Senate inquiries, you know, a key. It's not realistic to expect the Australian government to regulate this directly. Uh, you need to regulate the labour hire companies. If you had good labour hire companies, we could really crack down on this problem of illegal uh, labour uh, in low-skill sectors. Uh, so I think that's kind of emerged as the key policy reform and it'll be interesting to see if the government responds to that, not for the seasonal worker itself, but as a wider social policy issue. Okay, that's the seasonal worker scheme. Now we go on to temporary migration and we, in fact we have four different um, proposals under this, under this heading. Uh, so first is uh, Pacific Backpackers. And, you know, here the idea is if you can't beat them, join them. Um, so Australia is the mecca for backpackers, right? We get half of the world's backpackers. Uh, they're increasingly about employment rather than cultural exchange. And while the scheme is oriented to developed countries, there are now a small number of places reserved for citizens, of young people of developing countries. And Australia is negotiating two such schemes with uh, PNG and Fiji. 
And we think this is a good idea. You know, we think if you can uh, get one of these visas, you can come to Australia and you could get work for up to two years if you meet the three-month criterion. If it's for 100 from each specific island, these are small countries, this, this could be uh, significant. So, uh, you know, we welcome that expansion to PNG and Fiji and we hope it's, it, it happens quickly and could be expanded. We have a few suggestions around the details of these schemes, but one thing I mentioned because it, it comes in later, you know, we, we do have a whole set of recommendations on what the Pacific government needs to do, Pacific governments. And it's important, this is not just something for Australia and New Zealand. And, and for, in the case of PNG, the ball is very much in the PNG government's court to respond to this uh, MOU. These are regulated schemes, right? These are not schemes where backpackers uh, just move. They have to be, in the case of the developing countries, Australia requires sort of a list from uh, the developing country government. So it's important the Pacific uh, governments get behind this. Yeah, second, this is the Korean scheme I mentioned. You know, Korea, unlike Australia, has no, no qualms about running a low-skilled um, labour mobility program, and they uh, draw on Asian countries for you know, up to 55,000 uh, slots a year, five-year visas. And uh, in uh, late 2000, around 2009, they invited Timor-Leste to join this scheme. So since uh, 2009, Timor-Leste has sent 1,900 workers. So, you know, they've only, Timor-Leste has sent maybe 100 to Australia on the seasonal worker program. So this is much more important to them. Uh, so we, as one of our pieces of research, uh, one of our teams went to Timor-Leste and we did a small survey. And uh, basically we found, you know, this scheme has a very good reputation among the workers who've returned, even though not all stayed for the five years. They thought it was hard work, but positive. They sent home significant amount of, they had significant profits to take home or send home. And, uh, you know, we recommend to the Pacific, they lobby Korea to extend this scene, the scheme to Timor-Leste, right? If you, Korea has also become a donor in the Pacific. Uh, you think it would be in Korea's interest to um, have this in their diplomatic arsenal. Uh, again, it's uh, not just something for Korea. Sending country support, not just lobbying, but support. You've got to pass a Korean language test. I mean, it can be done, and Korea's up, I think, at the global average, which is about 40%, so it's a tough test. But uh, clearly, you've got to organise those, those language programmes. All right, the third area is broadly around um, what, how can we get uh, more Pacific take-up of existing um, temporary migration programs. So we think of the 457 in the case of Australia and uh, the Essential Skills Visa in the case of New Zealand. Uh, we have a range of, uh, you know, wide range of discussion, number of reforms, but for the presentation, I'm going to boil it down to the uh, APTC, Australia Pacific Technical College, which is something I've been working on for a long time with Colm and others. Uh, APTC was set up uh, before the Seasonal Worker Program as an aid for migration initiative, but it hasn't delivered. And we can see from this tracking survey. So if you ask the graduates of the Australia Pacific Technical College, you know, most of them want to migrate. Uh, a good fifth have taken steps to migrate, but very few have actually migrated. So APTC hasn't provided that pathway. I think now a lot of analysis has been done on why, what went wrong. And the encouraging thing is that APT is continuing and there is a new phase now uh, being uh, designed and that gives an opportunity to revisit this issue and ask how could we improve labour mobility outcomes. And I think, you know, what's come out from all the discussions and the research is the key need is you, you can't just give a, a training program that meets Australian qualifications and then think that automatically provides a pathway. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that. I think that's what we've learned from the last decade of experience. You need to identify feasible migration pathways for specific countries 
and then commit to helping students down those pathways. Right? There's no guarantee that they'll succeed, but uh, in, in terms of uh, not only providing them the right qualification, but uh, providing information, perhaps uh, providing them, say, six months of work experience uh, in Australia. Uh, what about brain drain? That's always been a fear, particularly around the APTC. Uh, you know, it's a legitimate fear. Uh, if it's not addressed, it can be addressed either by training fresh students, right, rather than taking the most skilled already, um, or by picking occupations where there's not a domestic shortage, right? And so maybe working in the trades is not exactly the right area, because that's often areas where there are a shortage. You know, think of something like aged care, where there's there's no uh, real domestic industry uh, and so no shortage. Well, that leads on to the next uh, and the final. Uh, reform proposal under the um, temporary uh, category. Uh, this one is a mouthful, we need to come up with a shorter name, but it's the Pacific High Medical Need Caregivers Program. And this uh, sort of sits generally within the ageing uh, of Australia and uh, New Zealand um, you know, problem and how we're going to respond to that. You can see the massive growth that we are expecting in the number of residential and community care uh, sectors for aged care workers, it's more, much more than a doubling. Uh, this is already an area where we have a, a lot of churn. Uh, it's going to become more acute. You know, we're actually in Australia, we're heavily reliant on migrants. If you actually ask, you know, people who are working there, whether they're migrants or not, it's about one third, I think. But these, they don't come into a specific category. They're either, they're from New Zealand, uh, they could be backpackers, they could be students, um, they could be spouses of migrants who've come in through a, a skilled category. So there's no formal migration route because we don't allow skill level four, which is where aged care work falls. Uh, New Zealand does have a migration route, and interestingly, a number of Pacific Islanders come in as aged care workers, but only a one-year visa. And if you think about aged care, you know, one year, you know, it's not suitable for seasonal work, right? You want continuity. So we don't think either Australia or New Zealand has, you know, migration settings right on this. And we think Canada presents a good example. Canada has a multi-year caregiver visa. It's not for any aged care workers. It's particularly to provide in-home care. It doesn't have to be living at home, but it's in-home care to people with high medical needs. And so it's a particular category where continuity of care is uh, especially important. Uh, it's, a, a, it's a visa that Canada's got some experience with. They've uh, reformed it. It's uh, four years, but then it has a pathway to permanent residency. And we put this idea forward for consideration that Australia and New Zealand should consider a Pacific caregiver visa. We recommend the Pacific not only because that's our particular brief, but we do think there are advantages to having a sort of geographical focus in terms of um, educational quality and building up links with employers, uh, avoiding uh, scandals. Okay, so that leaves a couple left under the long-term permanent migration category. Uh, you know, I won't repeat the whole discussion around APTC, making better use of existing migration pathways. I'll instead uh, look at the two new ones that we put forward. Uh, first of all, we examine in some depth uh, New Zealand's specific category visas. Right? So New Zealand, unlike Australia, has an explicit specific window in its uh, permanent migration uh, regime, you know, really for historical reasons, um, I guess. Uh, so it provides 250 places to Fiji, Fijians and Tongans each, and 75 each to Tuvaluans and Kiribati, and then 1,100 to uh, Samoans. And this works on a lottery. So you apply uh, if you want this visa, and uh, if your number, you have to see if your number's uh, put out. It's like a green card 
kind of system. And there's massive uh, excess demand, you know, by a factor of five or ten. So clearly showing the the high demand for uh, migration in the Pacific. Uh, but winning the lottery is just the first step. You also have to meet a language requirement, a health requirement, a character requirement, and most importantly, a work requirement. So you have six months to get a job after you're selected in the lottery. Um, and uh, Richard did uh, some detailed analysis of this, updating and uh, improving on earlier analysis. And we, we think it, it's a scheme that works well. It delivers overall good migration outcomes without requiring micromanagement. So the, you know, the problem with the scheme, whether it's seasonal worker program or the APTC, it does require a lot of detailed uh, rules and regulations and planning. This is a much more market-friendly system, right? You just pick people, uh, you make sure they've, they've got a, you pick them by lottery, so you're not picking the, the most skilled, you're trying to minimize brain drain, you make sure they've got a job, so there's not gonna be high levels of unemployment, and then you let the market take care of it. So. Uh, overall, we have a very positive assessment of this scheme and we argue for its expansion to Australia. You know, obviously, this would be a big shift for Australia because it would have to move away from having a non-discriminatory permanent migration scheme. But given how discriminatory uh, other parts of the system are, this doesn't seem, it's not as big a leap as it sounds. Uh, you know, a lot of the backpackers who come to Australia, come for second year, uh, they end up you know, on a 457 and they'll end up as permanent my, uh, migrants. So we are giving people pathways to permanent residency on a discriminatory basis. So it's not a bigger departure as it might sound. Uh, we do recommend two uh, reforms if Australia were to introduce it. We think the education requirement could be tighter at the moment. It's a basic sort of language requirement. Uh, the analysis shows, not surprising, you do better if you've got a high school qualification. And we think high school, of course, if you make the education requirement too high, you'll get brain drain. But high school seems, doesn't seem particularly taxing. It's something people can make sure their kids uh, graduate with. It gives some incentive for the sending countries to um, you know, improve secondary uh, access and quality. So that's one way we think the scheme could be tight. And the second is, um, you know, in terms of helping people to get jobs, we do notice some people, there, there's a problem people don't keep their initial job. I guess part of it is a sort of sorting mechanism, but we think there's often reliance on uh, diaspora. You could do better if you had uh, greater access to information through job brokers uh, that could be funded by the sending countries through some sort of uh, fee associated with the scheme. All right, then finally, this is probably the most radical idea of all, so leaving the most radical for last, what we call the ANZ Atoll Access Agreement. Right? And this goes back to those two atoll countries. They're facing uh, very serious risks, possibly existential risks from climate change. Uh, they have, uh, you know, limited mobility opportunities, but not really uh, significant. There's just this uh, New Zealand scheme. They've uh, in the past been successful in getting uh, workers seafarers, but those opportunities have really diminished uh, due to greater competition from Asian countries. Um, Kiribati in particular, with more limited labor mobility opportunities and very high population growth rates, you know, faces very rapid population growth in uh, the years to come. And this is, you know, with existing migration outflows. Um, and, you know, normally you'd think, well, with development, you can handle population growth and, and population growth will stabilise. But in the case of Kiribati, very low GDP growth to begin with, uh, very real resource constraints, you do worry about this sort of population uh, growth. So, you know, we're not talking here about evacuating the countries, <laughs> but we are talking them about 
managing a very difficult situation and and trying to uh, not make it worse by this very rapid sort of population growth. So having an atoll access agreement, that would be an open access agreement. You know, it sounds uh, risky and you think, well, everyone's going to get on the next plane out. But in fact, that's not the experience. If And we went back to try to understand the experience of the compact states. Uh, obviously, numbers are limited by income. You know, you have to get uh, you have to get a plane ticket and you need a certain amount of uh, sort of capital to move. So we estimate the number. I mean, these are obviously just informed guesses, but it's only be 1,300 a year. So although it would be open access, uh, we think it would be manageable in terms of Australia and, and uh, New Zealand. And this would sort of be a, uh, a climate change um, type response. Okay, uh, before I go on to the uh, scenarios, we have another section on what the sending countries need to do, right? It's important. This is not just uh, something where we're demanding reforms from Australia and New Zealand. Uh, the most important is to lift the quantity and quality of skills supply. You know, if you're worried about brain drain, this is what you should do for both um, labor mobility and domestic employment reasons. Uh, second, promoting Pacific workers and opportunities. Uh, governments need to lobby. Governments need to support their workers under the regulated schemes. Uh, it's mainly going to be national governments, but we do think you know this uh, regional body, given the importance of remittances, it should have a labor mobility as well as a trade and a investment mandate. And finally, what about social impacts? A lot of people get nervous about family separations and um, other shifts, moves away from subsistence farming, uh, community breakdown. Uh, of course, social impacts of labourability are not necessarily negative. I'd argue they're overall positive. Uh, the negative outcomes are most likely to arise from long-term family separations. And so the best way we think to minimise negative social impacts is to avoid those schemes. And so the schemes that we promote in this reform, uh, sorry, in this report, do not involve uh, long-term family separations. All right, so now, uh, you know, the, what's the return on all these reforms? So we have the scenario analysis out to 2040. We have a business as usual scenario. We have a medium growth scenario, and we have a high growth scenario. Um, and obviously, in the medium growth scenario, we implement some of the reforms in our report. And in the high growth scenario, we implement uh, most of the reforms in our report. Uh, we target the growth of the low mobility in atoll states either when they're quota driven or because they're, they're the ones who will be most interested uh, relative to the states that already have open access. Uh, you know, this, yeah, I just give this caveat. It's illustrative but telling um, the analysis. Um, okay, this is uh, the number of migrants as a percentage of the resident population. So, under business as usual, actually, it's going to fall. The total number actually goes up, but with the rapid population growth, the percentage uh, of people overseas under business usual goes down. It starts to, it's about maintained the same with the medium and middle high growth scenario. It's actually a higher proportion of people overseas. Uh, what about net income? This is, I think, my favorite graph of the report now um, that I understand it. Uh, this is the uh, income earned by the migrants are net of their opportunity cost. So the jobs they, they leave behind, and in the case of the seasonal workers, their expenses in Australia. And I mean, what's interesting, it's already 80%. This is today, right? It's 80%. So why do we spend so little time on labor mobility, right? Uh, why do we spend so much time on the other 100%? So obviously, this is not included in GDP, right? 
This, this is the income. This includes the remittances, but also the amount they don't send home. So it's not included in GDP, but if you think GDP is 100, well, this is 80. You know, we don't spend that, we don't rate, weight our analysis that much in favor, give that much weight to labor mobility. So yeah, that's, that itself is very striking. Um, then under BAU, it's gonna fall slightly. Uh, under the medium growth scenario, it rises to uh, 90% and under the high growth to uh, 100. And this might not look huge, but this is what we call the $10 billion prize because this is $10 billion, the difference between the blue and this uh, gray at the top. So it's a very significant um, potential gain. Uh, this is in terms of the more conventional uh, analysis of remittances. Um, you know, remittance data is very poor and also remittances only reflect a small part of the gain because the biggest gain is to the migrant and their family that moves overseas. Um, under the uh, business usual, we actually see remittances rise. I think that's because of the growth in seasonal worker. We include all the seasonal worker net income, um, but it's significantly more in terms of the high growth and remittances, it's almost, it's about 800 million um, additional remittances from the, the high growth scenario. Uh, what does it mean? Remember, we wanted to focus on specific countries, those countries that are um, isolated or particularly vulnerable. So we developed this concept actually called uh, GNI Plus, where we include not only the remittances, but in fact the net income of the migrant. So this is not a conventional domestic income um, uh, measure, but it's, a, it's, it's a meant to be a measure capturing the welfare of the Pacific Islanders, for, you know, regardless of where they are. And you can see, so one is where we are now, and uh, the blue is where we'd be under business as usual, the red with the medium and the uh, grey with the high. And you can see for these countries, Kiribati, uh, PNG, Solomons, uh, to some extent Tuvalu and Vanuatu, there are huge gains. So including the income from migrants, high growth scenario, national income growth per capita doubles relative to BAU for PNG, Solomon Islands, triples for Vanuatu and quintuples for Kiribati. So these are enormous gains. There's no other reform, no other set of reforms you can find that will have this kind of transformational impact. And you can also see that from some of the numbers Jesse put up. There's nothing else that gets near $10 billion. So there are uh, enormous gains to be had, even if you only implement some of these uh, reforms. Uh, for receiving countries, you know, in Australia, we wouldn't notice. Uh, New Zealand would. Uh, so it would be more significant for, for New Zealand. But, you know, these are manageable countries because the Pacific is small relative to the sending countries. All right. Well, I know I'm out of time, so I'm going to wrap up. Yeah, I've already given the $10 billion prize. We say it will benefit the receiving countries as well. As I mentioned at the start, you know, we are building on success. Right? There has been good movement uh, over the last decade in relation to labor mobility. And I guess the purpose of this report is to kind of think for what could be the next steps. This is sort of a, a thinking big type uh, report. Um, you know, we, we want the next decade to continue the momentum and end the phenomenon of Pacific isolation, which is still found not across all the Pacific, but in significant parts of the Pacific. And then just the final comment, that reminder takes two to tango. You know, we do try, we do have a significant, this is only going to work if, the, if Pacific country governments um, uh, are also serious about expanding uh, labour mobility. Uh, yeah, as Jesse mentioned, um, uh, this is, a, you know, we're open for comments. Please do get in touch with us. And um, yeah, this is going to feed into the final Pacific Possible Report, which will be released in late uh, 2016. And I'm looking forward to 
seeing that report from the bank. So thank you very much. Stephen. Uh, so we've got about 10 minutes for questions. We might actually go a little over time if people don't mind, if we have a lot of questions, but if you do need to leave at 1.30, please feel free to do so. Richard, would you like to come down here and sit in the chair that I was sitting in? Um, I've said that all, all four of us are, are able to answer questions. So um, would anyone like to ask the first one? Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Stephen and the team, for the uh, very, uh, very good presentation. And uh, as we said, it uh, we have we need two to tango. So I guess from the Pacific perspective, uh, um, I'm very grateful um, for the presentation. Uh, it's uh, for the Pacific. Uh, you know, we are faced with a lot of challenges, uh, resource constraints, isolation. Um, and then, uh, you know, in terms of economic development, it's pretty tough out there. And uh, I'm grateful that the report uh, brings to the fore uh, the challenges that we are facing. And uh, for the Pacific, you know, we are far off from the rest of the world, Europe, Americas, and uh, elsewhere. But, uh, you know, we are closer to the Pacific. And in terms of the challenges that we face, New Zealand and Australia, uh, other, you know, closest countries there that that can see the problems that we are facing, and also from the Pacific, we also see that uh, in terms of our survival, development, um, uh, in terms of economic, and so on, we really count on Australia and New Zealand in terms of our economic development and, and, and all that. So um, I'm grateful to the report that you uh, have uh, come up with, and I'm happy to go through the report and uh, really um, read, read more. Uh, to learn about what you have, uh, what you have uh, covered in the report, but uh, you know, certainly this is this is uh, very interesting to us, and um, I'd be very happy to see. Um, as you said, we need two to tango. So, uh, from the PNG and the Pacific side, what do we really have to do um, uh, to take advantage of the various opportunities that you have uh, highlighted? And then, uh, of course, um, we need to talk with Australia and New Zealand in terms of how can we approach these two governments as well in terms of addressing uh, issues and impediments and other issues that may be out there. So I'm, uh, I'm wondering whether the report touches um, in terms of what we ought to do and uh, what uh, the, the Australian and New Zealand governments have to do to, to address issues that they have to, um, to help us to take advantage of the opportunities that you have. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you very much. Um, so we'll take a few questions. Uh, can you please introduce yourself when you ask the question as well? So do we have a second? Uh, yes. Um, my name's Henry Sherrill. I work for a Labour Party MP, um, not the Immigration Minister. Um, it, I think this stuff is fascinating. I used to work for the Immigration Department and for the Migration Council Australia. Um, and I think, Stephen, your point about, um, you know, there's been consensus around the last 10 years and how we're moving towards this is a really good one. Um, but I just wondered, I suppose, from like the World Bank's perspective and from Dev Policy's perspective, now that you have a report like this, like what are the next steps? Um, 
I know that there are people in the Labor Party who are keen to talk about the Pacific, um, but at the same time, I also know that there's very strong views in the community uh, who are skeptical of low, lower skilled migration. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting political question. Uh, and the evidence looks like it's in from this perspective, but that doesn't mean anything's going to change in terms of those big, big differences that we see. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, Paul? Well, thanks, uh, and thanks for the report. Uh, I, I've got a, lot, a number of comments, but I just want to ask a question in two parts today, and I'll make my comments subsequently. One is about the Pacific Caregiver Visa, which I think is a terrific idea. I recall that there was a very small scheme for training nurses from yes. Kiribati in Queensland. I wonder whether there's an assessment of its success and uh, merit, and whether that's uh, part of your thinking on this. And the second relates to the unfair competition for backpackers, which I think is the main problem with the Australian scheme. Uh, and I wonder, perhaps it was politically wise, but uh, I wonder why you didn't mention the fact that a backpacker tax would actually make a difference to that right. because the taxpayers yeah. are subsidising the farmers to employ the backpackers at the moment, and they shouldn't be. And if the backpacker tax is passed, they won't be. Yeah. Excellent. All right, so we have three three questions. Um, would you like to begin, Stephen? Yes. Yeah, sure. um, yeah. Well, thank you very much, first of all, to the uh, PNG Deputy High Commissioner. Thank you very much for coming. Um, and in terms of what the Pacific needs to do, there are two things. Well, yeah, let me just highlight two things. Uh, one is lobbying. I think here the Pacific's been quite successful. I mean, it was Pacific lobbying that got the seasonal worker program off the ground, got the APTC off the ground, and most recently in the context of PESA Plus, it's uh, Pacific lobbying negotiations that has had the got the cap removed from the um, uh, seasonal worker program. It's got the uh, Christchurch Reconstruction Initiative, which is uh, targeted at trades people in New Zealand. And also, interestingly, New Zealand has um, proposed to commence a sort of annual uh, forum on labour mobility. I think the first is later this year, right, um, in New Zealand. And that's a, that will become a regular venue where Pacific and Australia and New Zealand can discuss these labour mobility issues. And you can imagine that could be very fruitful for getting some of these ideas off the ground. So I think, um, and interestingly, I mean, Australia and New Zealand still haven't got PESA Plus <laughs> agreed, right? Uh, so I think Pacific's been very successful in uh, pushing these issues. So lobbying is one. Uh, second is yeah, support, national support. Um, you know, it's fine if it's uh, like a, um, the New Zealand um, Pacific Access Scheme, Pacific Category Scheme, uh, which is not very regulated. But if it's a regulated scheme like the Seasonal Worker Program, it really needs government support uh, to, to work. And, you know, if you look at uh, which countries have done well, it's... Um, countries that have provided that support. So Vanuatu is a good example. You know, Vanuatu is the biggest sending country for the New Zealand uh, RSE. So it's not that Melanesian countries can't compete in this scheme. They certainly can, but they need to be very well organised. And Vanuatu, to be honest, Vanuatu has done a much better job than either Solomons or PNG. So I think providing national support, yeah, I'd encourage your government to finalise the uh, backpacker programme because Australia is ready to move with that. It's in the, it's in the PNG government's court. So it's those two things. It's uh, lobbying and then providing national support, I think, that is really needed from the Pacific countries. Uh, yeah, Henry, thanks very much for coming and for the very good question. I, we agree this is obviously it's a bit of a political minefield, migration, very difficult issue, perhaps becoming more difficult. Um, but 
Yeah, we think uh, there are opportunities. I think in terms of the ones we've presented, I think APTC is probably one that could go forward because the government is engaging in this uh, redesign uh, process. Uh, I don't think they're going to turn their back on the labor mobility objective, and so reforms will be needed. Uh, I think the backpacker one is one that's underway with PNG and Fiji. There's no reason it couldn't be rolled out across uh, the other Pacific Island countries. I think it will take longer, but the caregiver scheme is one, you know, well, I think eventually Australia will need something like that, uh, given the aging of the population. Um, and yeah, I think that Korean scheme's already up and running, right? I don't think it'd be that hard for the Pacific to lobby Korea. So I think there are some in our report that are, could happen in, short, in the short term. There are others that are, we put out there for debate um, and will take longer to, um, to be, uh, may never be accepted or take longer to be accepted. Um, yeah, Bob, on um, the uh, nurses, yeah, we've, uh, that, we're aware of that eCareBus scheme. It's actually been evaluated um, by uh, AusAid and um, it was actually, I think the labor, the job outcomes have been pretty good, but the, it was a very expensive scheme. And I think, uh, in fact, Jesse wrote a blog on this. Yeah, they were called the, uh, the quarter million dollar nurses uh, because that training was very expensive in Australia. So I think what we're suggesting now is not at the nurse level, um, but at the aged care worker level, which is a, a lower skill level, and where the training, at least substantial part of the training could be done in country, so reducing the costs. Um, but yeah, that e-Kiribas uh, scheme, I think, was on the right lines. It was just, uh, it was so expensive, in fact, it, it hasn't been sustained. So we need to look for a lower cost option. Um, and yeah, on the backpacker tax, uh, I agree. Uh, that is one way to reduce the supply of backpackers um, if you make them uh, pay more tax. Um, and I can't remember whether we mentioned it in the report. Uh, we, actually. we wrote a blog on it. We have written a blog on it, yeah. I've been on uh, rural radio advocating the backpacker tax, um, <laughs> which is a very lonely experience. <laughs> <laughs> And Richard, you wanted to yeah, add well, to Henry's question, I think. Um, to probably respond to Henry's uh, point, I uh, was part of the APTC evaluation and, and now part of the redesign of APTC. And there certainly is a very strong emphasis on making sure that labor mobility is included in the way it was overlooked in the past. I think some of the other ways that developments uh, using APTC graduates can help overcome some of the limitations of countries not being able to get <coughs> access to the seasonal worker program. For example, Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands and Nauru, it's going to be extremely difficult for them to break in because of the first mover advantage, first mover and second mover advantage. In Australia, it's Tonga and Vanuatu. In New Zealand, it's Vanuatu and, and Tonga. But one way that cycle could be broken is for APTC graduates to get work under the tourism pilot, which now has 15 occupations, 11 of which I counted APTC qualifications would be applicable for. So I think that there's a significant opportunity there. The thing that would have to change is that the six months uh, limitation, and I think nine months for people from Kiribati and Tuvalu because of the extra cost of travel. But 
that needs to be extended, particularly in the tourism part, of, to make it worthwhile for employers to take people on. So those uh, existing opportunities or the, 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 with relatively small changes, there could be significant opportunities where they haven't existed in the past. Okay, thank you, Richard. Um, yeah. Excellent. All right. Um, so in the interest of time, we'll, we'll have another round of questions. If you do need to leave, please feel free to. Um, I'm conscious that uh, we've gone over slightly anyway. Um, but another round of questions. Uh, we have one here. Um, this is very interesting. And it sounds like some of these new schemes could perhaps open up more opportunities for women migrant workers to come over. That's been an issue in the seasonal worker program. So I wondered whether that was something you perhaps looked at in your work. Um, and also, I, I wanted to ask whether under some of the schemes that have perhaps a longer term, obviously for the seasonal worker program, this wouldn't work, but whether there was consideration of having family visas and so on to negate some of the potentially negative social impacts that you mentioned, because that seems like something that could have broader benefits and perhaps open the scheme up to, to different types of people and perhaps women as well. Wonderful. Excellent question. Thank you. Uh, and we have one here. Yes. Um, David Pullman um, from Foreign Affairs. Um, so I'm just curious, given the, the low levels that you showed at the beginning of Melanesian mobility, then when you got to your final conclusions around the $10 billion prize, you were showing high rates of return for particularly for Melanesian countries. So I'm just curious, if, is that against baseline? So that's where you're showing the differential, or are there specific advantages or Place, you can move to Melanesia to get that return. Okay, thank you. Uh, any other questions? Yes, please. Um, I noticed under the, uh, the sending country reforms that you mentioned, education, I'm just flipping through the report, but um, education gets quite uh, prominence, and um, that's a much longer term project to raise education standards. And um, have you done sort of projections? with and without those education reforms, because one assumes that business, I mean, improvements will take um, a considerable period of time. Okay, uh, did you have a question, Colin? Yeah. Or oh, Tony, yes. Yeah, I was just curious about your um, concerns about brain drain, and it does relate a bit to this question. Um, just on, that given that most migrants um, would be overseas on a sort of medium-term basis, um, to what extent is brain drain likely to occur on an ongoing basis and they'll be coming back? And just wondering if you've done any sort of sensitivities on, on to what extent your concerns about brain drain sort of temper the potential benefits that you've identified. Yeah. Cool. Um, maybe we go in a different order this time. Is that okay, Jesse? Would you like to go first? Um, thanks for the question, Ashley, on the female migrant workers. We did actually factor that into the projections. Um, so for the seasonal worker program, for example, we ran a scenario where um, female migrants reached 50% and we found that there could be an extra 17,000 places for female migrants. But more broadly, the sort of low-skilled um, sectors are currently the focus and in horticulture it is a challenge, sort of both on the demand side and the su supply side in bringing female migrants over. There's a lot of cultural perceptions around women's place and work in, in certain sending countries. I mean, also in the horticulture sector in Australia, a lot of employers, unfortunately, um, 
you know, uh, are against taking on women for the more physical roles. So it's about how you address those and how you sort of move into new sectors um, with more potential for female migration. Um, on the family visa stream, we didn't specifically look at that as, a, as an entry pathway, um, but we did look at uh, the possibility of bringing over family members through uh, the temporary um, pathways and more permanent pathways. So for all of the projections, I believe the assumption was um, that people could bring their family members uh, over. Um, on, the, on the Melanesian uh, gains, um, there was an assumption made for the projections that uh, a higher percentage of opportunities would go to the Melanesian countries. So there was a particular focus on PNG, Seoul's and Vanuatu. But we didn't specifically lay out an action plan as to how those countries would um, achieve gains versus um, some of the other sending countries. So I think that's probably another area of, of research. Um, on education reforms, again, this is a, a sort of a, a long-term horizon. So we're looking at 25 years. Um, so the, the sort of implication isn't that everything's gonna change in the next five years, but really how can we start thinking about this through to the year 2040? Um, but it's certainly a good point. And then on, on brain drain, um, we definitely factored it in from the very beginning. And the data that we have suggests that it is a concern, um, particularly for the adult states and, and the really small states. And that's the reason we um, uh, included particular reforms around how uh, sending countries can address this. And I guess there, there are two major ones. One is that um, receiving countries should be the ones that are bearing some of the costs for training up workers. And you have these uh, global skills partnerships like the Australia Pacific Technical College where Australia bears the cost of training up workers. And we think that's a good model. Um, and we also think that they could introduce um, income contingent loan schemes whereby uh, potential migrants are given access to credit. And if they decide to migrate, then they have to pay those loans back. And if they don't decide to migrate, um, then that's covered by the, by the sending countries. So I'll leave it there. Great. Thank you, Jesse. So, um, Richard, would you like to comment on any no, of the... I couldn't improve on Jesse there. <laughs> would you like to talk a little bit about the background paper on the Pacific Access category, um, just in terms of the impact that education had on outcomes? Because I think that would be yeah. of yeah. interest to the audience. Yeah, one of the valuable things that I was able to do was to look at the employment outcomes of people coming from the Pacific Access category countries and the New Zealand census in 2013 enabled me to, uh, I got some special tabulations uh, to burrow down and look at individual countries and I did find one country in particular that had lower employment outcomes than the others and that was Tuvalu. Um, it, whichever way I looked at it in terms of uh, qualification levels, it, its employment rate was lower. Now, I could assume from this perhaps that the quality of education in Tuvalu, a country of 10,000 people, uh, may be lower. Um, it, it could also be that um, there is... A, a fairly large um, diaspora in New Zealand, but it could be that that diaspora isn't able to provide the sort of networking. It may be overextended in terms of how it's been able to help uh, people migrating into New Zealand, and that may be a another limitation. So I think it was the specific experience of 
Tuvaluan migrants that made me aware that uh, there had to be special arrangements to ensure that the rather free-flowing or open-ended system that New Zealand has got, where they do not provide, they, they do provide some limited help in the Department of uh, the Section in, related to employment, does have two relationship managers that try and place uh, migrants, but it only covers about 40% of the migrants. And the rest of it, the, the rest of the responsibility for people being able to find jobs relies on the diaspora to do that. And, and actually the size of the quota has been um, set on the basis of the size of the diaspora. So the fact that uh, Fiji and Tonga have the same quota of 250 is not to do with the population they've come from, but uh, it, it was assumed that the diaspora was large enough for those two countries to support 250 a year. And in the case of Kiribati and Tuvalu, which uh, also uh, Kiribati is 10 times the population of Tuvalu, but they have the same uh, quota, was determined also on the basis of the diaspora that was in New Zealand. So that sort of uh, open-ended process, I think, probably needs uh, some more support in terms of job brokers to be able to ensure that uh, you could lift the quota and to help um, particular groups such as those from Tuvalu. I'll just make one point in relation to David's uh, was a very interesting question. And um, yeah, we do, I mean, we put it in the assumptions. So it's sort of, in a way, we're assuming the result. But I think the underlying thing is that if you want to get this big increase in labor mobility, we are talking about a couple of hundred thousand more Pacific Islanders overseas. You know, these people have already got free access. So we're assuming that you don't need, you provide them opportunities, you're not going to get more going. They can all go to the US, right? What more could you want? Um, <laughs> uh, the, yeah, here you've already got very high levels of uh, mobility. So you could get some more from Fiji, but this is very high. So if you're going to get that big boost, it has to come from this uh, area. So that's the un underlying logic. <clears throat> Any other burning questions? Yeah. Those yeah. figures are in relative terms, uh, Stephen. Uh, what happens if you put them in absolute terms? I mean, for Jimmy, that little bit dot in PNG looks a bit bigger. Uh, a little bit, but um, <coughs> yeah, we've got that actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, Fiji dominates, I think, as I recall. Yeah, Fiji is 189,000, uh, PNG is 17,000. So, for example, PNG, you know, compared to Tonga, which is 53,000. Yes. Um, you mentioned uh, um, remittances. Uh, I was wondering if uh, your report uh, did look at the cost of uh, remittances uh, and uh, is it high manageable? Uh, if it is high, what can be done to actually reduce the cost of remittances? So that's part of the, the, the one of the underlying assumptions of the report is that the cost of remittances declines over time. So from uh, do you remember the exact figure? It's twelve down to three. Yeah, twelve percent to three percent, which is yeah. the SDG target. So that's included in, in all our projections. Yeah. yeah, it is high, and we've done some research actually on why it's high and what could be done to reduce it. So we 
Yeah, it's addressed briefly in the report. It's a very good point. Any last questions? All right, well, I think we might conclude. Please uh, join me in thanking Stephen. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.